I um, moved down here about uh, 13 years ago, but uh, before that, I've, I lived in Virginia for my whole life. And so uh, if you live in Virginia, especially if you grew up in Virginia, um, there are certain things that uh, unite and define all of us. And one of the things was a joint and shared love for the uh, National Football League Washington Redskins. And this was the team that I grew up cheering for, uh, and I still cheer for through the good and the bad. Uh, my earliest heroes were guys named Theismann and Riggins and Monk, and these were the heroes of the day back in the day. And, and part of what makes uh, being a, a Redskins fan so great, being in D.C., is that in D.C., football is bigger than politics. You know what happened on Monday, right? on Sunday based on how people live on Monday. And it has nothing to do with the weekend or the weather. It has everything to do with what happened on the football field. And football was huge. And so the Redskins were religion to people like me. Not only uh, was uh, Redskins the team that we cheered for, but what that meant by default was that there was a bad team, an arch rival, a nemesis, so to speak. And they were the bad guys from Dallas, the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, I think most of us know uh, there's a rivalry between, um, it's just kind of like the old Wild West. It was the Cowboys and the Indians fighting against each other. And so we grew up not only loving the Washington team, the Redskins, we grew up hating the Cowboys also. That's just the way it is. That's the way you do life, the way you live. We used to have a saying, says, I have two favorite teams in the NFL. Number one is the Redskins, and number two is whoever is playing the Cowboys. That's just the way that it was. And part of our hatred for the Cowboys was because they were not only our arch rival, but they were pretty good also. That's what made it even harder. It was a tough pill to swallow because in their, in their heyday, at one point they had 20 consecutive winning seasons. It means for 20 years in a row, they won more games than they lost. That's a huge streak. Five times they went to the Super Bowl. Two times they won. Five times they won the conference championship. And 13 times in those 20 years, they won the division, which means 13 times the Redskins did not win the division. And so everything about the Cowboys, we hated. I hated their colors. <laughs> I hated their players. I hated the way they played. And we especially had we just had these ill feelings towards their coach. His name was Tom Landry. I don't know if you had, any of you guys know Tom Landry, but he was nothing like what a football coach ought to look like. He always wore a gray suit, and we hated that gray suit. Always wore this skinny tie before skinny ties were in, and we hated, hated that hat that he always wore, hated his smug look on the sideline, and especially we hated it because of the fact that he coached a team that ended up tripping us up year after year after year. And as he retired, we celebrated and we danced and we laughed. And the more you get to know his story, the more you begin to like him because you see, he's a brother. He's a Christ follower as well. And so all of a sudden, all of those ill feelings had to be repented of and had to be surrendered to the Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. This is a brother and you died for him and we cannot have that kind of ill will towards him. And there was this one interview that was done with him. He said, what made you such a great coach? And this is what he said. I think what he said was so deeply profound. He says, really, my job is not complicated, though it may be difficult. He said, my job as a coach is to get men to do what they don't want to do in order that they could achieve what they have always longed of achieving. I longed to achieve, to, to get people to do what they don't want to do in order that they might achieve what they've always dreamed of achieving. That's the role of a coach, the role of a good coach, to enable people, to empower them, to help them to see the value in doing something difficult, to go through that hardship in order that they could do something that they never before dreamed that they could do, but they always wanted to accomplish. That's kind of what Jesus was as a coach. As we've gone through the eight weeks, and this is the ninth week of this series on the incredible Jesus, what I want to show, not only is he a great miracle worker and a healer and all of these things, but Jesus is a coach, and his purpose in our lives and in the disciples' lives is to get us to do things that we may not want to do in order that we might be able to accomplish things that we never before dreamed we could accomplish. Don't you wish that you could achieve and accomplish certain things in your life? 
for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, for the mission of God? If you do, then I promise that in following Jesus, the way that he calls us to follow him, that we'll be able to see some of the things that we dream of seeing as long as it's a dream given by the Lord. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 14, familiar passage, one of my favorites in all the scripture. I've, I love preaching from this passage, although um, this is not a sermon I've preached from this passage, but um, I think it's, I think it's, it's valuable and it's powerful. And I believe that at the end of our time, our lives are going to be changed. And literally, we will spread through all the earth abroad the honors of his name if we take his word to heart and we allow it to be planted within us. And I believe this with all my heart. This is the word of God for the people of God. Matthew fourteen twenty two. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat Go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. This is the crowd that he just fed of 5,000. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance, distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. This is God's word. So Jesus has just fed 5,000 people, right? You see that in starting in verses 13 through 21. We saw that in John chapter 6, parallel passage last week. Just fed 5,000 people. And up until last week, up until the feeding of the 5,000, these miracles that Jesus did, the incredible things that he did were, were just relegated to individual people, right? Or small groups of people. Healed a few people here and there, raised the sick. But for the first time in mass, you've got 5,000 and, and scholars say 10,000, maybe even 15,000 people were there. And so to this massive crowd of people, Jesus does a miracle in their sight for everyone to see. And so here's this oppressed Jewish people living under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire, paying taxes to them, being oppressed by them, having to be subjugated to them. And so these Jewish people are thinking to themselves, listen, if our daily struggle is where am I going to get food, and this man gave all of us food, if he's the kind of person that can heal lepers, if he's the kind of people that people are dead, he can bring them back to life, He's the kind of person that can take sick people and give them the ability to walk and to, to, to sing and to dance and do all these things. Then surely he's our king. What can he not do? He's going to be the one to lead us against Rome and he's going to topple that empire and we're going to be a free people again. My chains are gone. I've been set free. They're starting to sing this song. And so it says they intended to make Jesus king by force. You remember this? They intended to make Jesus king by force. And so here's what Jesus does. He thinks to himself, okay, well, the way to the crown is through the cross. And that time is getting nearer and nearer and closer and closer. If my kingdom is going to be entrusted to these 12 disciples, then how can I develop their faith so that when I'm gone, they will continue to take this movement forward for the glory of my Father. How can I do that within them? And so we see what Jesus does. That's what he's trying to do, to build and develop and strengthen the faith of his people so that they would be ready, so that when game time comes, they can win the game when it's on the line. How does he do that? He does it by three things that he does here, I think that are very intentional. Three things that he does, he dismisses 
his people, and then he invites Peter, and then he performs a miracle. See, so the, the, the dismissal, the invitation, and then the miracle. How does he develop faith through, this, uh, through these means? We see it through a storm again. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to see through the dismissal is very simple. Jesus builds our faith one step at a time. Okay, Jesus builds our faith one step at a time. So here's Jesus, feeds the 5,000, and they're trying to make him king by force. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Okay, gets into the boat. John 6, 23 says there is no other boat there. So they get into the one boat that's there. Jesus puts them in the boat, and he sends them off while he dismisses the crowd and says, hey, you guys, go home. And then as all that is happening, so you got three different things happening right here. The crowds are going home. They're all dispersing. The disciples are on the lake going to the other side where Jesus is going to meet them as he presumably walks across, right? Uh, Walks around. And then it says, he, verse 23, after he dismissed them, went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. So the crowds are gone. Disciples are on their boat on the lake, on the sea. And Jesus goes up on the mountainside, the same mountainside where he was having a conversation with his disciples when they began to see the crowds coming. Okay, so the, the, the crowds are out of the picture now. You've got the disciples on their boat, and Jesus is praying. Next thing that happens, when evening came, Jesus was there alone. Okay, so evening, probably evening started, well, not probably, evening started in those days at 6 p.m., Okay, sun goes down 6 p.m. This is evening time. Now, the way that they calculated time in those days is that sailors and nautical people all knew. It's kind of like um, people took shifts throughout the night. Okay, there are four watches of the night. The first watch of the night goes from 6 to 9, second from 9 to 12, third from 12 to 3. The fourth watch of the night goes from 3 to 6. Okay, so they break it up into shifts. You guys sleep. I'll be awake for this three-hour session. Make sure that nothing shady goes on. It's kind of like when... We go to like retreats or you know, things like that. There are different people who are around the clock security, making sure nothing shady goes on. So there are different people who are staying up on the seas, making sure that nothing weird is happening. Verse 24, the boat was already a considerable distance, distance from land. It says Greek many stadia. What is a stadia? Basically, three and a half miles is what other contexts say, other passages say. Three and a half miles, so they're in basically dead center of the lake, okay? Um, considerable, three and a half miles from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. We've kind of seen this before, haven't we? I think we saw this maybe like three or four weeks ago where the wind and the waves are against them. They're in the boat and they're flipping out. Crazy stuff happens, but it's happening again. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them. Okay, so during the fourth watch of the night, verse 25 says, the fourth watch of the night between three in the morning and six in the morning. Okay, so what does that mean? It's pitch black. They're still rowing. They're still rowing. And in nine hours, they've gone three and a half miles. This is not very good. This is like one third mile per hour. Okay, so this morning I was asking one of our guys, Hibachi, Josh Choi, I said, hey, have you ever, do you ever ride on a boat? Do you ever ride a canoe? He said, no. <laughs> and he said, why? And I, just, I was just wondering, I was just wondering how fast you can row a boat on a sea. These are professional fishermen, mind you, but they're going one third of a mile an hour. That's really slow. Really bad, really terrible progress. Why are they so bad? Because the wind and the wave, all this stuff. We've seen this before, like I said. This happened three and a half weeks ago. What's it, three weeks ago. So what happened? What happened? What happened in that time? See, the only thing different, the only thing different about this time and then is that there Jesus was actually in the boat. The problem is they don't have anyone to wake up who can speak to the wind and the waves and say, be still. And it becomes calm as glass. So what do they do? What do you do? You ever been in a storm like this? You ever been in a storm? Sometimes in your storm, it seems like Jesus is there. He's right here with me, but it seems like he's asleep. Here, Jesus is absent. You ever been in a storm like that? There, Jesus was here, present, merely aloof. Just kind of there. But in this storm, Jesus is not there. They are alone. 
You ever been in a storm like this where nothing seems to be working? You're trying, you're rowing, you're, you're doing all of this stuff and you're not getting anywhere. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. The wind and the waves against you. Not only that, it's getting darker and darker and darker. The rain is coming down. You can see nothing. You ever been in a storm like this? Can I, can I tell you, if you're in the middle of a storm right now, there are three reasons why God, at least that I, as I was thinking about this, three reasons why I think God sends a storm. The first one, God sends a storm in order that you and I might repent. Okay, that's what happened in Jonah. Jonah was running away from God, so God sent, literally it says he threw a storm. If you're facing a storm in life, it could be that God is calling you to repent because you're going the wrong way. You're going away from him because you're living in sin, because you're living in immorality, because you're doing things you know are wrong, but you keep on going that way. And so God throws storms in our lives to get our attention so that we would repent. Are you going through a storm in your life? One of the questions that we need to ask is, is there sin in my life that I'm living in, that I'm living with, that I haven't repented of, that God knows, that I know, that other people know, but I'm still living in the midst with that sin. The first reason God throws a storm is so that we might repent. The second reason God throws a storm, we saw this in in the other passage where Jesus calmed the storm, is to reveal our hearts. Remember Jesus said to them, where is your faith? Maybe a storm is coming up in your life and it's not because of sin, but a difficult thing is happening and God is just saying, hey, where's your faith? It's a test to reveal your faith. Do you have faith in me? Can you trust me even in the face of the storm? Even when you haven't done anything wrong, can you still trust me? But here, the third reason we see storms come from the hand of God is not to cause us to repent, not to reveal, but to refine our faith. See, what's happening, the disciples know, hey, we've been in this situation before. We've been in this situation before, and all we needed to do was to call out to Jesus. But what do you do when the one to whom you would call on is no longer there to be called on? Jesus is taking them to the next level in their faith journey here. What do you do when you no longer see Jesus with you. Are you still going to trust? Can you still trust? He's saying, if you're experiencing a test, a storm in your life that you've never before experienced, it's because God wants to take your faith to a level that you've never been to before. Anytime you face something new, so you're in eighth grade, all of a sudden you get slammed with pre-algebra. What are these letters? I remember when I was taking my first day of of pre-algebra, my teacher, um, she just gave us these algebraic questions problems and she said figure it out and if you can't figure it out then just write i don't know and so you know like in and when you get to pre-algebra they don't use the x sign for multiplication anymore because you introduce a thing called variables and so it's a dot right a dot means multiplication is that right right that's how it was in my school and so it said like four dot six and so i said this is weird and so i went to the teacher i said um mrs whatever your name is mrs um there's a typo on my paper And I showed it to her, and she's like, no, that's not a typo. I said, but what is that? And she said, if you don't know it, just leave it blank. I said, okay, that's kind of strange. And so I went back. If I I, I experienced something I'd never seen before, because I'm learning something, they're they're teaching me something that I haven't been taught before. If you're experiencing a situation that you've never been in before, it's because God is trying to grow your faith by putting you in a situation that you've never before experienced. But here's the thing. What Jesus is doing, he's removing all of the safety nets because, listen, there's going to be a time when the disciples are going to need to buck up and hardship is going to come and they're not going to be able to physically see Jesus anymore. So how does Jesus teach them to walk by faith and not by sight? By removing himself from their sight. This is what Jesus is doing. He's building their faith one step at a time by removing the safety nets from their lives, by removing the ability for them to walk by sight in order that they might walk by faith. The thing is, as much as he's removing their safety nets, the reality is that there's still a safety net there. What is that safety net? What is Jesus doing? Verse 23 tells us, after you dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. 
What do you think Jesus is praying for as he dismisses his beloved disciples into the teeth of a storm unlike anything they've ever faced before? Jesus is praying what he prays in John 17. He's praying for his disciples that their faith would not fail. Father, strengthen them, empower them, encourage them, fill them in order that their faith would not fail. He's doing what he says when when he talks to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that you will not fail. And that after you've been restored, that you go back and you strengthen your, your brothers. He's praying for them so that they would not fail. Even though they could not see him, he could see them. And that was a safety net that they needed. You are never, ever without a safety net when it comes to following Jesus. You know, you know a guy named Bear Grylls? He was in the star of the show, Man vs. Wild. And the premise of the show is we're going to teach you how you can survive in the wild but the reality is that no one is learning how to survive in the wild we're just thinking man bad uh, bear girls is a bad man because he does crazy things he eats animals he beats up lions and tigers and bears and he survives in the wilderness he jumps into sub-zero temperature he jumps in the lava and comes out on the other side okay and he's like, everyone's like oh it's great everything is great i, I love my life and it's crazy. So I remember reading an interview with this cat. The interview is like, hey, you got kids, right? He's like, yeah, I got kids. And like, you do some really bad things. So how can you tell your kid, your kid's about to touch fire, about to touch the oven, touch the stove. How do you tell him, don't do that, when he's like, I saw you do that on TV. How do you, how do, you do that? What do you say? What do you say when your kid is climbing in a tree and he's about to fall out and what do, you, what do you say? This is what he said. I think what he said was so, was so profound. He said, what you don't see on my show is that there's always a backup plan. There's always a safety net. You don't see it on TV. But if I'm about to die, they're going to come in and they're going to intervene. So my boy's about to touch fire. My boy's about to fall out of a tree. I ask him, listen, I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But here's, here's what I ask him. I say, what's your backup plan? If you fall out of a tree and no one's there, you break your arm, you break your leg, you break your head, what's your backup plan? Who are you going to tell? Who are you going to call? How are you going to do that? You always got to have a safety net. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. And you've got a safety net. Because why? Whenever you go through the fire, you might not see Jesus, but he sees you. And he's praying for you that you might not fail and that your faith might come out stronger. This is what Jesus is doing. The tests get harder and harder, the older and the more mature you get, right? If you cannot pass a test, then you stay at that same first grade level and you keep on getting first grade level tests, but you pass that test and God graduates you to second grade and the tests get a little bit harder. The words get a little bit longer. The memory, ver- the, the, the vocabulary words get a little bit more difficult. They get trickier. You get a third grade and it's not sink or swim anymore. It's not sink or float anymore. You get different kinds of challenges. And the more mature you get in the faith, the more challenging the tests are going to be because God is saying, you've graduated, you're on the next level because here's what Jesus is doing. He's building your faith and he's building my faith one step at a time in order that our faith might be stronger, in order that his disciples could eventually march through the empire and win nations for him. It's what he's doing in us. You going through a storm, maybe it's because we need to repent. Maybe it's because he's revealing where our heart is. But it's also could, it also could be because he's trying to refine our faith. Jesus builds our faith one step at a time. Second thing we see here, very simple. Second thing we see is that Jesus builds our faith one scary step at a time. I think the disciples are scared. They're very scared. Verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, okay, three in the morning, six in the morning, anywhere between three and six. Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Okay, you imagine you're a disciple. Okay, what are you thinking? They're in the midst of a storm. All craziness is breaking loose here. They're dead 
in the middle of the storm. John 6, 23 says there were no other boats there. Okay, so literally, they, the only place they know, the only person they know who could help them is Jesus, and he's, he's on shore. No boats to get him to where they are. What are they, they going to do? They're fearing their lives. And then during the fourth watch, Jesus walks out to them. So you see, it's raining, right? It's raining. It's windy. All of these things, you can barely see. Their arms are sore. Every part of their body is aching because for nine hours, they've been rowing. They think, oh, my goodness, I haven't slept. I must be hallucinating. Something crazy is happening. And then you see somebody walking on the lake. What are you thinking? I tell you what they're not thinking. Oh, Thank you, Jesus, that you're walking on the water to where we are. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking it's a ghost. And before we think what a bunch of dummies, I think we'd be doing and saying the exact same thing. It's a stinking ghost because anytime you see somebody walking where they shouldn't be walking, and it's probably going to be a ghost. I mean, that's that's what I'd be thinking. You've heard some of you heard this before, but there was a time where. I saw somebody walking where they shouldn't be walking. And my only logical conclusion is that's a ghost. So I was in middle school, and I was driving with my dad to to church for our youth meeting. It was on Friday night. It was called PGIF, Praise God, It's Friday. That's what it was called. And so my dad and I, when my dad is driving, I'm sitting in the front seat. It was like getting dark at night, started at 730, so we're driving. It's dark. We're driving on 55-mile-an-hour Dulles Toll Road, right about to get off our Tyson's Corner exit. And I remember sitting there, and in front of me, like all the way down the road, in the middle of the road, was this lady wearing like what looked to me like a wedding dress. A person wearing a wedding dress who's not at a wedding is scary. (laughs) A person in a wedding dress who's not going to a wedding standing in the middle of the road is even scarier. We got closer and closer, and... To me, like the way that I still remember, she wasn't standing there. She was floating there. So a girl wearing a white wedding dress when she's not at a wedding and not preparing to go to a wedding, who's standing in the middle of the road, not standing, but floating in the middle of the road, that's scary stuff. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, that girl's got to move or we're going to hit her. So when I first saw this, my, my, my thought was, well, this, this may be like something floating in the air, like trash or a white sheet that's going up in the middle of the air. But the closer we got to it, right, the closer we got to it, the more I realized, no, that's a lady, a legitimate lady floating in the middle of the road wearing a wedding dress. And the closer we got, I realized, oh, my gosh, she's staring at me. This is not a dream. This is real life. So don't think, oh, and then I woke up. <laughs> no, it's not. This is real life. Guy. I'm not coming back from a dentist. This is like completely sane. Everything is, I'm driving my, my dad's driving. I'm in middle school and there's a lady floating in the middle of the road and she's staring at me and I'm like, don't look at me. Don't look at me. And she was kind of like, it's almost like she knew the car was going to hit her because she's almost like to the side, like a Heisman stance, but she was more straight up and her hand was out like this and she's looking at me. Just like that. And the closer we got, I was like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And then we're about to hit her. And I know that I know that this is real because my dad, he doesn't say much. And especially to me, when I was in middle school, he didn't say much. But the steering wheel went like this, like this. And then he went, whoa. (laughs) And boosh. And then we just like went through that lady. And then that was the end of it. Never saw her, never hurt, never hit a thud, nothing like that. And I just remember I was probably as white as she was as soon as that was done. And my only explanation was, oh, my gosh, we just saw a ghost. <laughs> Insanity. Because anytime you see somebody who's walking or standing where they ought not to be walking or standing, that is what you think. It's a ghost. So they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, immediately, just to calm them down, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. It is I. Every Greek scholar in here knows that that word, that phrase, it is I, literally is two Greek words, ego, a me. I am. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. What is Jesus saying? It's in the same language that God 
alone uses in Exodus chapter 3 to say this is the name of God, says I am. And with that disclosure of the divine name, these disciples in the boat hear that, don't be afraid, and then Peter, of all of them, verse 28 says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, Peter is a man of the sea. What is Peter doing? A lot of people say, well, Peter, what a dummy. He's always doing stupid stuff like that. He's trying to, why does he want all the glory to walk on the water? Why does he want to do all the, Peter's not, he, he may have said some stupid things, but Peter's not dumb. Peter knows that you don't walk on water. People don't do that. People don't do that. He knows that it's against the laws of gravity. He knows that it's, it's just not something that people do. Water is not solid. It's liquid. You don't walk on water unless it's frozen, and it's not. So what is Peter saying? At the heart of the matter, here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, you know what? If that's really you, Jesus, then I would rather be with you in the middle of the water than to be without you on the boat. Think it's better for me to be with you in the middle of the water than to be with my cronies apart from you on the boat. See, it is better and it is, it is safer and it is more. This is where I'd rather be. I'd rather be with you. Kind of echo of the psalm is better. It's one day in your courts than a thousand else. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. A doorkeeper was the furthest one from the temple courts. A doorkeeper was the one who was holding the door open while people got it. He said, I'd rather do that with you than to be with a thousand, for a thousand years to be with other people elsewhere. And Peter's saying, I'd rather be with That's why he says, listen, he doesn't say, look at what he says in verse 28. Lord, if it's you, he doesn't say, let me walk on water. If it's you, I want to see a miracle. If it's you, I want to experience that. If it's you, let me do it. He says, if it's you, tell me. If it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. That's all Peter wants. He just wants to be with Jesus because the only thing that matters is I want to be where you are, Jesus. That's it. There's nothing about I want to be a water walker. I want to be a miracle worker. I want to be a history man. None of that stuff. All he wants is, I just want to be where you are, Jesus. And if that means I've got to walk on water to get to you, then you can make it possible. I think a lot of times we have the opposite thing. We would, Jesus, I want to walk on water, but he have no concern to whether Jesus actually wants us to walk on that water or not. We want to do all of these great things for Jesus, but we have no concern whether Jesus actually is calling us to do those things for him. We want to go and we want to, 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 to change the world and to make history and to slay dragons and to knock down the, 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 the giants that enslave other people. But we never ask Jesus, is it you who's calling me to do that? Because wherever Jesus wants us to be is the best place for us to be. A lot of us are wanting so much to do all of these things for God. But Jesus never told us to do all those things for him. The first thing he called his disciples to was to be with him so that they might receive from him so that then they could go out and change the world, driving out demons, preaching the gospel of the kingdom to all nations. But the first thing Jesus wants is that we get where he is. That's all he wanted. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And with one word, Jesus says, come. Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water. Can you imagine this? Never happened before in the history of the world. No one's ever done this before. But Jesus says, walk on this crazy wave. Walk on it. Just come. Just come. And Peter left the safety of the boat to go to where Jesus is. Because the only way that our faith is going to grow is if we come out of what we deem to be our comfortable place. It's the only way that our faith is going to grow. And some of us are praying, Lord, I want more faith. I want to do things. I want to follow you on it but we're not willing to, to get out of our comfort. We're not willing to 
go beyond what is normal in our prayer life. And we pray for one minute, two minutes a day. We say, that's good enough. And, and then we say, Lord, help me to grow. Why am I not growing? We want to overcome sin. We want to overcome temptation. But we're not willing to, to remove ourselves from the context in which those temptations are in. And so we hang out with the same people. Or we stay in the boat where Jesus is calling us to come. And so we never grow beyond our current level of faith. And we wonder why for 15 years I'm growing older, but I'm not growing any more mature in my faith. And the same things that tripped me up then, 15 years ago, continue to trip me up today. Because we're not willing to come out of our boat, come out of our comfort zone in order to follow Jesus and grow. We will never grow if we're hanging on to the side of the boat. We'll never grow if we won't put that foot over the ledge and come out of our comfort zone. We'll never grow. For some of us, Jesus is calling us to come and to do that, to take a step of faith, and it scares the living daylights out of you. How can I tell my friends I'm not going to run with them anymore? How can I tell my friends I'm not going to do this anymore? How can I give this up? How can I give that up? How can I do these things? How can I go on missions? I know the deadline is today, but I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm scared. Faith always grows in a context of taking a step of faith where faith seems scary. But that's how Jesus is building our faith. Why, it was Peter. It wasn't these other guys. This is not the story of Bartholomew walking on water. It's not the story of, of, of Matthew walking on water. As Matthew's writing this, I bet he, he would kill to say, Matthew then said, but he didn't. Then Peter did. That's why it was Peter who stood in front of three, uh, thousands of people on Pentecost, preached the gospel, and fire fell, and thousands of people came to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Because Jesus was growing his faith, and he was willing to put his faith out there. I'm scared to death to talk to my friend at school. How can I invite them to church? How can I invite my coworker? How can I share the gospel with them? If Jesus is calling you, that's the best place for you to be, even though it's scary, because he's going to be molding and refining and shaping your faith. How can I give 10% of my income? How can I do that? I don't think I can do it. But the other side of that taking a step of faith, if Jesus is there, then your faith is going to grow. And it's going to grow. But it always takes a step. The third thing, last thing we see, Jesus builds our faith, one, scary Yet glorious, <laughs> glorious step at a time. Peter walks on water. Verse 30, saw the wind. He was afraid, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. That's scary, isn't it? Scary to walk on water. As long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, as long as our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we can do anything he calls us to do. Did you know that if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, because his care is over your life, you are invincible until you have accomplished his purpose for your life. Listen, if God calls you in the faith to go, if God calls you to go to Iraq or Syria where ISIS has their camps, even so, if God calls you there, you will be invincible until you've accomplished the plan of God for your life. As long as Peter's eyes were fixed on Jesus, he walked on water. As long as you fix your eyes on Jesus, you'll be able to overcome the fears that face you. You'll be able to overcome the temptation. You'll be able to overcome the distractions. You'll be able to overcome the fears that you have of giving that up or surrendering that to him. But as soon as his eyes began to be fixed on the wind and the waves, the things that he had left behind, the things that he had overcome, the things that caused him to worry, as soon as he looked at those things, he began to fall. But for whatever period of time, for whatever period of time, Peter walked on water. I can't help but think maybe uh, if this was happening today, Peter being the you know, fisherman that he was, maybe he you know, attached his little selfie stick to his pole. He's walking on water. Take a picture. That's insane. Falls in the water, gets back up, gets in the boat, 
starts Instagramming that drink. Walked on water today. No big deal. Tags Jesus. Tags all his friends. And all of a sudden, his buddies start getting a ping. Peter tagged you. Walked on water. No big deal. Tagged Andrew and Bartholomew Thaddeus. Like, dang it. And all of a sudden, comments are coming in. All these people are liking his picture. Like, dude, Peter, your life is so epic. Crazy life. What a miracle. Once in a lifetime. All of these things. Peter, I envy your life. I wish I had your life. One of the disciples writes, thanks for the invite. You think? No. No. You know why? You know why they can't say that? Because they had every opportunity to do the exact same thing that Peter did. Every opportunity to be one of two people in all of history to walk on water. But again, it's not Matthew's story. Why? Because he didn't get out of the boat. It's not John's story. Why? Because he didn't get out of the boat. See, when Peter falls in the water, Jesus picks him up. They walk back to the, to, to the boat. They get back in. What do you think? The way, and then the wind and the waves calm down. He says it's completely still. What do you think, is this, what do you think the other disciples are th- saying? I mean, sometimes when I preach this, I say, oh, they're laughing at him. <laughs> Peter, you fool, you're all wet. I don't, think that, I don't think that's the way it happened. Jesus says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Oh, Peter, rebuked again. No, that's not what's happening. Here, here's what's happening. Again, Greek scholars would know that when Jesus says, you of little faith, he's really just saying two words, two words, two words. That's all he's saying. He looks at Peter and he says, little faith. It's a noun. It's actually a nickname that Jesus is giving Peter. Yesterday, at our, uh, outside of our youth meeting, I was saying hello to different people. And one of the girls came by and she said, see, everyone else has a nickname. I want a nickname. (laughs) Jesus was given people nicknames, and he gave Peter a nickname, Little Faith. Why do you call him Little Faith? Let me ask you a question. Was it Little Faith, his Little Faith, that made Peter sink in the water? Or was it Little Faith? that made Peter walk on the water. Tell you what, you can't sink in the water if you weren't walking first on the water. So here, Jesus, if he, this this didn't happen, but if I was Jesus and he said, little faith, why did you doubt? And the other disciples were like, why does he get a nickname? Why does he get a nickname? Then I, if I were Jesus, would say to the disciples, let me give you a nickname. I'll give you a nickname, collective nickname. Peter's little faith, then you are no faith. Why? Because it's a whole lot better to have a little faith than to have no faith. Can't multiply by zero, my friends. Faith as small as a mustard seed will move mountains. Move mountains. Jesus said, little faith. The term of endearment. Love. But then he's saying, little faith. But then, why did you doubt? Peter walks on water, and later he will do far greater things. Because the job of a coach is to get people to do what they don't want to do in order that they could accomplish what they've always dreamed of accomplishing. You know what made Coach Landry so great? In the time when coaches all looked like they were 300-pound linemen, he was the most trim and fit guy there. And that fraternity of coaches, why? Players said that every time he would point someone to do a drill, he would never point them to do a drill he wasn't willing to do himself. Told them to do push-ups, he would get down with them and do push-ups too, because that's what a good coach does. And if Jesus, a good coach, trying to build the faith of the people, getting them to do something they never do, the reason why Peter could jump, because he knew that Jesus would catch him. Jesus knew he can't just tell them to do it. And so he went and he did it himself. The only thing is, Jesus knew that when the father told him to jump, when Jesus needed him the most, 
father wouldn't be there to catch him. Safety net was pulled so that on the cross, as Jesus died for your sins and for mine, Jesus said, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason Jesus jumped and was abandoned so that when you and I jump, we'll always be caught. There's endless grace, endless grace. We will never fail when we fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him out of our boat. Let's pray together. I don't know how um, God is calling you to respond today. Maybe for some of us, the first step isn't saying, God, help me get out of my boat. Maybe the first step for some of us is we need to repent. We're not living the way Jesus is calling us to live. And I'm not saying that to those of us who are not followers of Christ, but for those of us who do say Jesus is Lord. You say, if you call me Lord, Lord, then why don't you do what I say? Storm is coming in your life. Storm is wreaking havoc on your life right now. The first thing that he's calling us to do is to repent. Turn away. Turn away from sin. Don't go back to those places. Others of us are here and really feel God pounding in our hearts. You're an adult. You know that today is a deadline to turn in your missions application, but you, don't, you just don't know. I'm scared. It's going to affect me at work. I, can't, I don't know if I can take that many days off. If Jesus is calling you, just take a step. If he's calling you, he's praying for you too. He's not going to let you fail. He's not going to let you fail. Maybe others of us, a different situation, a friend that you're praying for, somebody you need to forgive, someone you need to share the gospel with, someone you need to invite to our Resurrection Sunday service. The thing about Peter was that he didn't just run out to Jesus. He said, if you want me to come, if you tell me to come, then I'll come. I'm not saying go run out into the water because you'll walk on. I'm not. Sometimes you'll fail. I'm saying if Jesus calls you, let's go. Let's go. Jesus is calling you. It's better to be out on the high seas than in the seeming safety of your boat. Jesus calls. Let's go. Let's pray a few moments right now. Lord, make us into a church. Make me into a man. Make me into a woman. Would follow you wherever you call me, whatever you want me to do. Just let me hear your voice. Just let me hear your voice. I'll follow you. Let's pray. Let's pray for a couple moments. Quietly or praying aloud, but let's commit our hearts to following Jesus. It's not always safe, but it's always good. Let's pray together.
confess our sins before the Lord as we prepare to come to this table of grace. Confess our need for a Savior. I can't live this life on my own. Let's confess our need for Him. And as you do that, let's offer up thanksgiving. Thank you for loving me at such a cost. Let's pray for that for another minute and then I'll pray for us and invite you to Thank you.